Many big stars have appeared on Broadway through the years, but none brighter than Ethel Merman. She had an unforgettable sound that wowed theatergoers for some 40 years. Good morning. I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Joining me in the studio this morning is Brian Kello. Brian is the author of a new biography called Ethel Merman, A Life. Brian, welcome to Cityscape. Thank you very much. I'm sure there are many little girls here in New York City today with a dream of seeing their name in lights on Broadway. Right. Ethel Merman was once that little girl. She's a Queens girl. Oh, yeah, she was. She was born in Astoria in 1908. Her centennial is coming up in January of 08. She had no performers in her family. She was just kind of struck by lightning, really, uh, with this amazing talent, this huge voice. Anything you can do, I can do better. I can do anything better than you. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. Yes, I can. She was born Ethel Agnes Zimmerman. That is correct, with two M's. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> when did Zimmerman become Merman? When she was getting going in her early, early career, she did club dates and sang at movie houses before she became a big deal on Broadway. She abbreviated it from Zimmerman to Merman because she just thought it was snappier. Merman's dad was an accountant, Edward, and her mom was a homemaker, Agnes. Yes, she grew up in a completely middle-class family in, in Queens. She had a very happy, secure, sheltered life. She was an only child, which I think is a big key to her personality and to a lot of her success, actually. She was the apple of her parents' eye. I don't think they ever for one minute gave her anything but unconditional love and support and confidence. And that's what she gave back to them, unconditional love. Yes, absolutely. And it's interesting that a lot of what this book is about is the essence of Merman as the ultimate outer-directed personality. She was not a deep thinker. She was not an inwardly-directed person at all. And, of course, that's how she performed. How would you describe Ethel Merman's style? Outward, just thrown, hurled at the audience. Electric, energized, jubilant. Life is just a bowl of cherries. Don't take it serious. It's too mysterious. She started at five years old. Her debut was at the Astoria Republican Club. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Not too many people can say that. She performed for the troops at the various camps around Long Island and New Jersey and... uh, Never had a singing lesson. The famous story about George Gershwin when he cast her in Girl Crazy in 1930, telling her to stay away from singing teachers at any cost because she would ruin her natural style. And I think that was the best piece of advice she ever got. Let's take a step back there, though, Brian, because she was discovered while she was singing between films at Brooklyn's Paramount Theater by a Broadway producer. Vinton Friedley. He had heard about her. He was casting a part in uh, the Gershwin show Girl Crazy. And he came out to see her singing between the showings of the movie, and he was bowled over, and he took her to the Gershwins, and they played the three songs for her that she would wind up singing in the show. And, of course, one of them was I Got Rhythm. I got rhythm, I got music, I got my man who could ask for anything more. She always said in later years when she was doing concert appearances, I Got Rhythm was the song that put me on the map. And it really did. What's so great about her first interactions 
with the Gershwins is the fact that George Gershwin said to her, if you don't like these songs, I'll change them for you. Oh, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Oh, she was stunned by that. And who wouldn't be? I mean, uh, I, can, I can give you the names of many composers who would not say that. <laughs> you know, if you change one note and you're out. Who could ask She had great relationships with most of the composers whose shows she did. She was very close to Cole Porter, with whom she did five shows, starting with Anything Goes in 1934 and ending with Something for the Boys in 1943. And she did amazing, amazing songs of his. I mean, some of the more famous ones, of course, are I Get a Kick Out of You, Anything Goes, Blow Gabriel, Blow. You hear that playing? Yes, we hear that playing. Do you know who's playing? No, who is that playing? Why, it's Gabriel, Gabriel playing. Gabriel, Gabriel saying, will you be ready to go when I blow my heart? Blow, Gabriel, blow. Go on and blow, Gabriel, blow. I think that the reason... If you could pinpoint one reason that all these great composers, the Gershwins, Porter, Irving Berlin, wanted to write for her so desperately, I think it had less to do with the quality of her voice, which was astonishing, than it did with the fact that she got every single word across. And those show composers loved that. Uh, It's the same reason they liked Fred Astaire who you could not call a first-class singer by any stretch of the imagination, but his diction was letter-perfect. And it was the same thing with her. And these, of course, were the days without amplification. You could be sitting in the last row of the balcony and catch every word of a Cole Porter show. The Broadway shows during Ethel Merman's days were not the Broadway shows of today. God, no. They were fun shows. They were comedy shows, really. The books were nothing spectacular. There were a lot of pretty girls in costumes. There was a lot of salacious wit. They were not deep shows. They were not seriously dramatic in the way that Broadway musicals later became with the advent of Rodgers and Hammerstein and South Pacific and Carousel and things like this. Even Annie Get Your Gun, which she did in the 40s for Irving Berlin, it was a good old-fashioned rouser. Oh, my mother was frightened by a shotgun, they say. That's why I'm such a wonderful shot. I'd be out in the cactus and I'd practice all day. And now tell me what have I got? I'm quick on the trigger with targets not much bigger than a pinpoint. I'm number one. That's really what she did pretty much, until 1959, when she starred in Gypsy. Gypsy, of course, was a show in which she introduced so many great songs. Everything's Coming Up, Roses. You'll be swell, you'll be great, gonna have the whole world on a plate, starting here, starting now, honey, everything. 
Music by Julie Stein, lyrics by Stephen Sondheim, who wanted to write the entire show, but she didn't think he was quite experienced enough, and she wanted him to do the lyrics, but Stein to write the music. She loved that show right from the get-go. Well, it gave her the greatest role of her career in terms of dramatic scope. She played Rose, the stage mother who pushes her children on the stage. Here she is, boys! Here she is, world! Here's Rose! There are varying opinions on how successful she was as an actress. Stephen Sondheim thought she was brilliant in the comic parts of the show. He admitted to me that he preferred some of the women who did the show later, like Angela Lansbury and Time Daly, because he thought they were real trained actresses. You either got it, or you ain't. He thought she was dumb. He thought she was stupid, and so did Arthur Lawrence, who wrote the book. And they, they were very candid about that when they interviewed me. Was she a deep person? Was she a great thinker? No, absolutely not. I would not disagree with that at all. But I think they cut her short. Unfairly. I would say this if they were sitting right here. She really did put that show on the map. She made history with it. And nobody else who's done it, and Tyne Daly is a friend of mine, and she's a great, great actress, and Tyne would be the first one to tell you nobody has matched her vocally. Why did I do it? Why did it get me? Scrapbooks full of me in the background Give them love and what does it get you? What does it get you? One quick look as each of them leaves you All your life and what does it get you? Thanks a lot, out with the garbage They take vows and you're back zero I had a I dreamed it for you, June. It wasn't for me, hurry me. And if it wasn't for me, then where would you be, Miss Gypsy Rosalie? Ethel Merman thought she was a shoe-in for the film version of Gypsy. She did not get that part. No, it was the greatest professional disappointment of her life. She had been led to believe by the director of the film, it was a done deal, that she didn't need to do any further campaigning for it. And normally she didn't care. I mean, she she seldom did get to play the film version of her shows. Call Me Madam was an exception. And she loved doing that for 20th Century Fox in the 50s. But Gypsy was the one, this was her legacy. This was the crowning achievement of her, of her career. And she did very much want to preserve it on film. And she was really led down the garden path by the people at Warner Brothers, and then it was given to Rosalind Russell. So She did things that she ordinarily wouldn't do in an effort to try to get that part, including going on tour. She did not like to take shows on tour. No, she hated touring. And I think this is one, and I say in the book, this was one of the big mistakes of her career. And I'll tell you why. Touring was an essential part of being a theater star of that time. And the road was big in those days. They went a lot of places and, and big stars. And it wasn't just summer stock. You know, it was big national tours. The Lunts were famous for touring all over the country. And they, that's how they became a household name. If you didn't experience Merman in the theater, 
you did not have the same feeling about her if you just saw her on film where she didn't come off terribly well a lot of the time or on television. Uh, When I was a kid growing up in Oregon, she would be on TV all the time. My parents couldn't stand her. They would they would beg me to shut it off. But they never experienced her in the theater. So they didn't have that relationship with her or that affection for her. And a lot of people plain just didn't know who she was, I think. But I, I do think when I started writing this book, there were two questions that everybody asked me. And I'll be damned if I can figure out why people are so concerned with this. One, wasn't she Jewish? And two, wasn't she gay? Well, no and no. Why didn't she like to tour? Was she afraid of failure? Because I know that Red Hot and Blue opened and closed very quickly in Chicago, and she wasn't happy about that. I think it was a combination of two things. I think it was that early failure, and she was used to lines around the block in New York. So she thought, well, why bother? You know, uh, I'll just be a star in New York and that's good enough. And I also think that in a way she thought it was beneath her. And that was a big mistake. It really, really was. She was desperate to be a television star. She wanted a series of her own, a sitcom more than anything else. She wanted to be Lucy, you know. But I don't think she really had a chance of making a go of that partly because she wasn't a known enough commodity outside of the big cities. And, you know, it was not a big recording career or either. I mean, it was she was really somebody you needed to experience in a show. I mean, my friend Clea Blackhurst, who does a wonderful show, a tribute to Ethel Merman, and she just did it at Birdland a few weeks ago, says <laughs> that Ethel isn't exactly make-out music. Ethel Merman may not have provided us with make-out music, but she did do a disco album, and we'll be hearing about that coming up. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm George Boldarki. My guest this morning is Brian Kello. He's the author of a new biography called Ethel Merman, A Life. Her last Broadway show was Hello, Dolly. This show was originally meant for her, but she at first turned it down. Right, exactly. Jerry Herman had written it for her in the early 60s, and he had taken it to David Merrick, who had been one of the producers of Gypsy. And they were just positive that she was going to do it and that it was going to be the greatest hit they ever had, which it did turn out to be, but not with Ethel. And she turned it down flat. She had just finished the long run and then the the tour of Gypsy. And she just didn't want to do another show. She wanted to be in the movies. She wanted to do television. And she turned it down. I also think that maybe if you've just played Rose in Gypsy, Hello, Dolly doesn't look like the greatest challenge. There was probably a little bit of that, too. But she turned it down. And uh, then it was recast for Carol Channing. And then, of course, after Channing had opened it very successfully, it ran for years with a variety of other lady stars. Merrick would bring them in with great fanfare and extract all this great publicity out of the, the cast changes. And then finally, in 1970, he came to Ethel and said, well, would you please close the show? Because we, we'd like you to do it at the end. And one of the things that made her say yes... I think, was the fact that two of the songs that Jerry Herman had written for her, Love, Look in My Window and World Take Me Back, had never been used because Channing couldn't sing them. They were written for Merman, a Merman voice. And 
she said, well, yeah, I'd love to put those two songs in because she liked them a lot. And so those two songs were introduced in her run in 1970. That gave it a little stamp of, of originality. But it was one of the few times, actually, that I think she was nervous. March Champion, who directed her for two weeks before she opened in Dolly, told me that she was quite nervous. And Marge said, I think she was nervous because it was the first thing that that she had done that hadn't been just for her. All these other legendary women, Channing, Betty Grable, Martha Rage, and Ginger Rogers had done this show. And she was a little, felt a little funny about following them all. She didn't want to disappoint. She didn't want to let anyone down. And again, I think that's a big key to her character. But she did open Dolly. She opened it very successfully. And then it was she was booked for three months initially, and she wound up playing it for nine. And it became, at that point, the longest-running show on Broadway up to that time. Many of her co-stars often complained that she had a certain style on stage that they didn't like. She never looked at them. She looked at the audience. Yeah, she did. She absolutely did. And I think that had a lot to do with the fact that she had played opposite so many vaudevillians when she was younger, people who had grown up, uh, people like Burt Lahr, people like Jimmy Durante. And this was a style. People just hurled it out front to the audience she never really got past that until Gypsy, where she she did sort of learn to connect with the people on stage a bit more. If you watch this wonderful concert she did in 1953 with Mary Martin on the Ford 50th anniversary show, they're doing a wonderful duet of medley of songs. And Martin is connected to her every step of the way, watching her, reacting to her. Ethel is straight ahead, not looking to the left, not looking to the right. It's absolutely as funny as hell. It was really only Jack Klugman that got right. her to look at him right. in Gypsy. Exactly. Uh, they were rehearsing Gypsy, and Klugman was a serious actor. I mean, he was a very well-trained actor. He had done a lot of live TV and Playhouse 90s and things like this. And they were working together, and he didn't even really want to be in the show because he was so self-conscious about his singing. And she wouldn't look at him in rehearsal. So one day... She gave him the cue, and he didn't say anything. And he just waited, and he said it was the longest five seconds of my life, I think was what he told me. And finally she turned to him, and he knew immediately that she knew what he was doing. And he was terrified that she was going to have him fired. But, in fact, she came around. She got it, and she she looked at him on stage from then on. She got a lot of people fired through the years, didn't she? She did, she was a very strict disciplinarian, and if you misbehaved, if you upstaged her, if you suddenly decided that you wanted to deliver your, your line from another side of the stage one particular night, you were out. She had to have everything locked in, carved in marble. Otherwise, I just don't think she could do what she did. Bob Hope did that to her. Oh, yeah. Oh, she loathed him in Red Hot and Blue. I think she liked him later. But when they were doing Red Hot and Blue in 1936, he would ham it up like crazy. Well, ad lib and lie down on the stage and do all these wacky things. And she complained bitterly about it. And and he did stop it eventually. Some of her co-stars have said that she would put so much into the first weeks of a show and then just go on automatic pilot. And she wouldn't put her all into matinees at all, ever. I've heard people say that. I've absolutely heard them say that. And I've heard other people like Jack Klugman 
say that that was absolutely not true. I think it may have been somewhat true on the matinee performances because she she used to get very angry at the matinee ladies because she didn't think they were attentive. They would talk. They would rattle their papers, their candies. And she hated the matinee audiences for Gypsy because there were a lot of mothers in the audience. And the mothers did not like the character of Rose. They thought she was too harsh. And so they were not very responsive, and it would make her furious. So a, a few times she did say, well, why should I put myself out for them if they're not going to put themselves out for me? And I do think she stepped back from the performance a lot. Merman was a secretary. She started off as a stenographer. Right. And she kept that going throughout her Broadway career because <laughs> during her time, shows were being written right up until the very moment they opened. Oh, yeah. Right. Uh, She would go into rehearsal and she would take down the changes from the director or the choreographer, whoever it was, in shorthand. And she would go home and type it up. And often she would share it. She would make copies for other people in the show. And she was very, very precise about this. She was terribly proud of it. And I I think it's a real key to the sort of exact, precise nature of her personality. You know, she was very concerned with exactitude and precision and loved being a secretary. She was quite good. She never employed one of her own. She did all her own typing, all her own correspondence, all her own bookkeeping. In fact, the, the, one of my favorite stories in the book is the morning after Annie Get Your Gun opened. She got reviews like her mother had written them. And her husband had the newspaper spread out all over the apartment. And Ethel wasn't paying any attention because she was going over the grocer's bill from the day before, and she had been charged for a can of peaches that she did not buy. And that was more important than reading what the New York Times had to say about her. Says a lot about who <laughs> Ethel Merman was, oh, yeah. doesn't it? <laughs> I wasn't born to stately halls of alabaster. I haven't given many balls for Mrs. Astor. But all the same, I'm in the pink. My constitution's made of zinc, and you never have to give this oil, oil caster. I'm always a flop at a top-notch affair. Well, I've still got my health, so what do I care? You help us to understand Ethel by throwing in really little tidbits to know that she had an artificial Christmas tree Mm-hmm. by her front door year-round mm-hmm. because it gave her comfort. Again, right. helps to allow us to understand who Ethel Merman was as a person, I think. Well, yeah, I think that uh, so many of the people that I interviewed for the book, and in that respect, in the story you're talking about, it was Margaret Whiting, who was terribly helpful to me. They all more or less said the same thing, that one of the things that surprised them about her was her vulnerability. And I have to say that was the thing that surprised me the most as I was doing the research and, and doing the interviewing. I had no I, – I think I had bought into the legend of Ethel the Tough Dame more than I realized when I undertook the book. And there was a lot more to it than that. I mean she was in many ways a very sad, very lonely woman. And in the book, I really try to show in some detail – how her life kind of came apart in degrees after her parents died. The whole construct kind of came falling down after that 
because that source of love and confidence and support that she certainly did not achieve with any of her four husbands was gone all of a sudden. And I think it's not a coincidence that she died not long after her father died. They thought Ethel had a stroke, but it turned out she had an inoperable brain Brain tumor. tumor. Of the four men that she married, one was an actor, Ernest Borgnine, and that did not last very long. No, it lasted a very, very short time, just slightly over a month. And it was a disaster. It was a famous disaster. It was in all the papers. It became a legend. Uh, People would say, you know, such and such was shorter than the Merman Borgnine wedding. And it was a great embarrassment to her, I think. She really did think that this was going to be it. He he was a big star. He was a she liked tough masculine guys and he was certainly one. And she thought he was gonna take wonderful care of her. And then I think when she saw the true colors, she was angry at him. I think she was angry with herself. She was humiliated and she got out of it very quickly. Her second husband, though, Robert Levitt, yeah. meant a lot to her. Yeah, he did. I think she she was certainly deeply in love with him for a time. He did suffer from depression and he did drink too much. But he the, the one of the advantages that Bob Levitt had was he was quite outside her own profession. And I think for actors in particular, this is key. I've seen so many marital failures and so many troubled parent-child relationships when everybody tries to work in the same profession. I just, you know, I I just, when, when actors have children, I just pray that they'll be doctors and lawyers, you know, it'll, just, it'll be much easier as well as more lucrative. He was a newspaper executive. He was a newspaper executive, Bob Levitt was, with, with Hearst. And he did very, very well for a time. He kind of ended up on the skids a bit. But um, uh, she considered him to be Later on, she said that he was the great love of her life. I I think that that may have been amplified a little bit in retrospect. I think maybe the marriage seemed better to her than it was after he died. He committed suicide, actually, in the late 1950s, which shocked her terribly. And I think she canonized him a little bit after his death. He was the father of her two children, Ethel Jr. and Robert. Right. Late in her career, Merman wanted to connect with the younger generation. Right. So she came out with a disco album. She did, the Ethel Merman disco album. She doesn't really sing the songs in any different way. They just kind of laid out in the disco track. when people would kind of question why she was doing some of these things. Well, why are you doing the love boat? Why are you doing an appearance on Batman? She would always say, well, it's good exposure. I need exposure. And she was very pragmatic about that. She loved all that stuff. She really did. And she was smart about it. Toward the end of her life, a friend of hers wanted to have a theater named after her. And when she found out about it, she was furious. Yeah, she didn't like surprises at all. And uh, one of her friends, Bob Shear, who is also a friend of mine, thought it would be a wonderful gift for her to have one of the Broadway theaters named after her. And he did a lot of legwork trying to make this happen. And he did finally succeed with the Apollo Theater, where she had done a couple of her more minor shows in the 30s. 
And when he came to her with the news, she was outraged that he had done this without her permission. And she stopped speaking to him for a period. She didn't want him going around with his hat in his hand, basically, on her behalf. And I think, you know, he was very candid with me when he told me this story. He said, I I could certainly understand why she felt that way. It was a mistake. It was an error in judgment. But she could be brutally unforgiving, even of her closest circle, if she felt that they had done something that misrepresented her or if they had used her in any way. She could be absolutely brutal. She could cut them off without a second thought. What would Ethel Merman think about Broadway being dark because of a stagehand strike like the one we've been seeing? Oh, I think she'd be appalled. She would have thought it should go on no matter what, and that it was up to everybody to reach some kind of compromise, some kind of agreement, and just get it going. I have a vision of her actually just taking to Broadway herself and doing a performance <laughs> right there in the heart of Times right, Square. Right, or pulling the curtain and moving the sets. I don't know. <laughs> Brian Kello, the book is Ethel Merman, A Life, and you'll be out there doing a reading soon, right? I will. I will on November 28th at the Lincoln Square, Barnes & Noble, right near Lincoln Center. And it'll be at 7.30 that evening on November 28th. Ethel Merman, A Life, is published by Viking. Brian, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you very much, George. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Rashida Winfield. Thanks for listening. Some people Some